Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Stephanie Hoover. Stephanie is a highly regarded, well-decorated, very successful interviewer and investigator. She had a long career in loss prevention where she was renowned as a resource, speaking at multiple conferences, writing multiple articles, training many new investigators, working on behalf of the International Association of Interviewers, and rightfully built a tremendous reputation for herself. After transitioning from loss prevention, she switched over to solution sales, where once again, she went from being very successful in direct sales roles to ascending to sales leadership roles. After being so successful in that world, she was then recruited to become the vice president and editor-in-chief of Loss Prevention Magazine, the most trusted media source for the loss prevention industry for her current role. I'm really excited for this conversation because Stephanie is somebody who has successfully applied the investigation mindset and the non-confrontational interview and interrogation skills, not just directly in investigative roles, but in her sales roles, in her leadership roles, and even to a degree in her family roles at home as well. And I'm very excited to have a conversation that touches on all of those things and really brings home how these mindsets and these techniques can be so successful and help us build relationships and create better outcomes in all of our high value conversations, regardless of the context. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. Before we go further, of course, I want to thank our sponsors. First, Humantel. Please, for anybody interested in developing the skill set of understanding what people are likely thinking and feeling in the context of any conversation by accurately evaluating their changing emotions through their facial expressions and body language, head over to humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off of their best-in-class online training. For people interested in learning more about emotional intelligence, please head over to EI Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com. Check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine for all of their articles, blogs, videos, webinars, interviews, and beyond events. Check them out for everything emotional intelligence related. And of course, for the professional interviewers listening, please head over to the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. That's where you can learn more about joining the organization, their networking opportunities, their interviewer resources, their legal updates, the events virtual and live that they offer. And of course, check out the certified forensic interviewer designation to see if you qualify and if it's right for you. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. So without further ado, I introduce to you, Stephanie Hoover. Hello, Stephanie. It is so great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. How are you? I'm fantastic. The weather is beautiful here in Chicago. Um, Couldn't ask for anything better. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I do kind of miss the three weeks a year that you have nice weather in Chicago. (laughs) But it literally is down to two days now. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. I do. I do miss living there. Keep it a little bit of a secret, but I, I do miss living there. I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. It's great to see you. Seriously, it's been way too long. I appreciate your offering to do this. And for me, I'm really excited about this conversation because while we share our investigative background in large degree, You've gone on and applied the same skills, I'm assuming, from your investigative career and so many other business roles as well. And I'm really excited to kind of learn more and hear some examples and talk through that. But for the people who are just meeting you for the first time, 
I know you've had a very successful career with many stops along the way. Could you summarize your journey for us, what you've done up until now and what your current role is? Yeah, but it's um, it's a lot. I've been around the <laughs> block a couple of times. Um, I, I guess way back in the day, I, I went to, to college and got my degree in criminal justice. And my whole plan was to go into law enforcement originally. Um, that was my dream. And graduated and found it very difficult to get a job at that time. There was a big hiring freeze going on federal and state level. And so um, I had some experience in loss prevention. Uh, I worked part-time at a department store called Famous Bar while I was in college. Yeah, it's a part of the May companies. Okay. Uh, but then from there, it was just kind of, I guess, not easy, but it was it was kind of easy to then continue to just get jobs in that field while I was still still trying to break into law enforcement. At some point in the journey, I figured out that I kind of like not getting shot at um, and was sort of good at loss prevention. So I just stuck with that and uh, continued to work in a, just a variety of different companies to just try and get different types of experience. Um, along my long way, got my CFI, uh, my Certified Forensic Interviewer uh, certification. Um, went from there to, at one point, uh, switched over to sales, working on what they call the dark side, right? <laughs> I went over to be a solution provider with a data analytics company um, and then continued on that road. So I, I just stayed in sales for a few years until one day this opportunity came up. So uh, LP Magazine has always been, um, you know, I revered this magazine. I, I've contributed to it and I've always read it as part of, um, you know, a resource throughout my career. And the opportunity came up to be the um, editor-in-chief with the magazine um, due to some retirements that were going on and was asked to, to fill in this role. So I was astounded that they would ever consider me for this, um, humbled <laughs> for sure, and um, been here for about a year now and it's it's been fantastic that's awesome and thank you for sharing all of that i was aware of many of those stops but not all of them um for people who are listening you might be asking wait a minute what is loss prevention i'll over summarize it and please if you think i miss anything important let me know Loss prevention or asset protection exists in many organizations outside of retail, but it's most commonly found in retail. And it probably looks and feels a lot different now than it did back when you and I were more directly involved with it. But it's generally the teams that are looking to secure the inventory, have operational oversight, there's some safety oversight as well. But they're also the team that typically is investigating and resolving internal and external theft. So depending on the organization that people work for or the, or the location that they're in, maybe the combination of both, they, are, they have quite the opportunity to be interviewing and investigating people on a real regular basis. Did I miss anything valuable in that? No, that, that was a great summary. I think uh, interviewing was a huge part of what I did on a day-to-day basis. And it and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's continued. It's kind of like once you get that, that tool in your toolbox, it's hard to, to take it out of there. It is. And that actually sets up a, a perfect question, I think, because I do agree with you. It becomes sort of a learned behavior. So now I know to, much to my wife's chagrin, if we're depending on who we're talking to and what we're trying to accomplish, some of those same questioning techniques or observation techniques are hard to get rid of, but they continue to provide positive results. 
So as you have transitioned out of a direct investigative role into leadership roles and then into sales roles and beyond to your current role, how do you continue to apply these investigative and we'll use the word interrogation techniques in your roles outside of that world? I use them every day. I mean, absolutely every day. Uh, I think it's it's just one of those things when you you sort of grow up in the industry like I did, it becomes part of who you are almost. Um, I'm a, a keen observer of human behavior. I'm always watching how people are reacting to, to me and to their environment around them. Um, and constantly listening to the things that they say and trying to sort of like play chess, <laughs> I guess, so to speak. Um, sometimes you kind of have to turn it off a little bit, especially when you're out with some friends just trying to have a drink um, and relax. You got to tone that down a bit. But, uh, but yeah, I use it every day in everything I do. I agree. There's a thin line. We're talking about the friends conversation. Like, there's a thin line between who's the jerk and who isn't. So if somebody is obviously lying, making up a story, whatever, right now they're on the wrong side of that line. But if I call them on it, no, I'm on the wrong side of that line. Yeah, so it's yeah. Better just, just to let it go. Um, you said something in there that I thought was extremely important that I believe people often overlook. Cataloging how people react to changes in their environment. Mm-hmm. I feel like all too often when people talk about reading behavior, studying body language, it's X means Y. If they, if they do one thing, it must mean something else, which everybody in the field, I believe, is well aware that that's BS. But it's typically related to either what they're saying or what I'm doing. And a lot of times people lose track of how important it is to recognize how people are reacting in their environment. Mm-hmm. Can you dive a little bit into how you apply that awareness in some of your business-related conversations? Yeah, so it's paying attention when when there's a stimulus, when there's an input, what's the output? What's their reaction? Um, so if I say something specific and there is a reaction, what does that look like? And then is it consistent? Like when I continue to do a similar stimulus, is that a consistent reaction from them? Then you kind of have their tell, so to speak, or you have their their baseline behavior. But to your point, right, there is no magic recipe for, you know, telling whether someone's telling the truth or not. There's no secret (laughs) like eye movements or anything like that. Um, It's just, to me, it's on-time behaviors and it's consistent over time. And then understanding what it's on time to. Mm -hmm. If we're having a conversation in a coffee shop, and their behavior changes on time to something I said. Well, if they were averting eye contact, were they averting eye contact from me or the person who was just walking by that they're trying to avoid? Or is the sun in their eyes? Like, What are these other things that could be going on that often people lose track of? Yeah, it's, it's sort of like doing an experiment, right? So you have to have a controlled environment. If I'm conducting my experiment in a coffee shop, that's not a controlled environment, right? So it's tough to, to figure out that, that baseline behavior. Um, but yeah, definitely use it every day, every conversation used it with you just since we've been talking, not in a bad way. I'm just, it's, it helps me, I guess, to try and define what's going on in my world around me. I think that's a great way to say it now that I'm personally offended and now (laughs) wicked self-conscious, um, obviously, right. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) Um, but I feel like it's continuous problem solving. So if, I under, if I'm understanding what other people are likely thinking and feeling, then based on my expectations and or goals for the interaction, I can adjust accordingly as well. So I feel like that's completely fair and actually far less creepy than it may sound to, to somebody listening from the outside. 
Yeah, I think there's some people who do it naturally. And they just don't know they're doing it. But you and I know we're doing it. Sure. I think there's a difference because we've been trained on it. Um, and I try to use my powers for good. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there is that. And there's a conversation to be had there. You know, I'm sure you've had plenty of these conversations as well. You know, we've both been at plenty of events for the International Association of Interviewers. We both represent the CFI designation. You've done plenty of speaking and training yourself. And the question comes up time and time again about the ethical line, because not just the skills we're talking about, but anybody who teaches persuasion or evaluation or questioning techniques or any of these related skill sets or techniques, yeah, people can use them for good or people can use them for evil. And it's not the technique itself that's necessarily or the skill itself that's necessarily good or evil. It's how people choose to apply it. What are the intentions? What are the motivation? What's the end goal? Are better decisions being made or better relationships being created or better outcomes being achieved? Yeah, you mentioned the ethical why, uh, you know, you, you could, uh, I guess, kind of lie a little bit when you're trying this technique. I, personally, I, I cannot lie. Like, I'm the worst liar on earth. So I just have found it easier when I'm in conversations, whether it's sales or an interview or whatever it is, just to be honest. It's just a lot easier. <laughs> it's just far less to have to remember, have to yes. work with, have to keep straight, for sure. I don't need that in stress in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you have enough. Yes, I do. That's a great point. And I feel like honesty, Honestly, honesty, that's probably not proper English, but honesty oftentimes eases the room. If people can just tell that we're being honest, if people can tell we're being self-deprecated, if people can tell that the flaws are on the table, like we're not hiding anything, we're here to be, I don't want to use the word authentic because I feel like that is so overused in so many ways. And it's but- we're just sure. we're just being ourselves, having a regular conversation that plays in sales. It plays when we're leading and developing our employees. And I'm sure you have a thousand stories about how it plays in interrogation as well. I'm just here. I'm just a regular person. <laughs> well, it's amazing. Um, other people can read you too, right? And if you're not being your authentic self, and I, I like that word. I think it's, it's applicable. Um, they feel it. They may not be able to articulate it, but they can certainly feel it. And I've, I've done interviews where I haven't been authentic. I'll admit it. And those haven't gone well for me. When I've been true to myself and, and true to who I, I want to be, those, those interviews have gone a lot better. And same thing when I'm leading teams, um, anything I've tried to accomplish, when I'm authentic, I get better results. Consistently, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and of course, my opinion, but success in a lot of these conversations we're talking about comes down to variable management. The more variables I have to manage, the more difficult this is going to be. And if I'm just me, that's a whole section of variables I don't have to manage. And if I'm trying to play a role, if I'm trying to tell a story, if I'm trying to make something up, if I'm trying to be somebody I'm not, now I have to juggle all of those variables on top of the other existing variables. And it just makes things so much more difficult. And it's a great way to get somebody not to trust you lightning fast. Absolutely. You know, talk about all the variables on your side and the added variable, they're not going to like you. (laughs) because you're not being yourself. Um, I found much more success, especially in the sales realm. I mean, I was pretty successful. And I got to say it was because I was myself and clients appreciate that. Um, But same thing in the interrogation room, you know, the minute I was trying to be fake or do something or tell a story that didn't belong to me, that's when I got into trouble. For sure. It happened to me, especially early in my career. And I'll own it. I feel like 
sometimes it was almost a badge of honor early on. Like what story could you tell? And, <laughs> and I'm very happy that I met people like your husband and others <laughs> who quickly showed me the light and got me to the path of how being yourself and remaining non-judgmental and focusing on the truth above all else really leads to, believe it or not, establishing unlikely relationships in the context of an interrogation room that cause people to share way more information than they would have otherwise and to end the conversation on a handshake or a hug and write it all down for you. Right. I, I'll give it an analogy. I, I'm not religious or Catholic or anything like that, but you think about a priest in a confessional, right? He, it's, he is what he is. He's the priest and the confessional. He's nothing else. That's why people come in and talk to him and tell them they're deep dark. See, if he was trying to be something else, he wouldn't have success with that. And I think that's the same thing with an interrogator. You just, you're going to be more successful if you, you just are who you are. For sure. You mentioned sales. Um, to tie these two interrogations and sales together, I feel like when I work with sales teams and they say, oh, interrogation. So you're going to teach me how to tell when my customers are lying and you're going to teach me to add better questions, ask better questions. Well, we can throw the first one away. And the second one, you can go ahead and ask better questions. But if you don't understand the context of the situation and you don't have a strategy behind it, that's like having a key to a Ferrari, but no Ferrari. Like have fun with those great questions that you now don't have the context or the ability to accurately deliver at the right time. So when you think about making that transition from investigative interviewing to sales, which in a lot of way involves investigative interviewing. What were some of the skills, perspectives, and techniques that were most transferable or most valuable for you? Well, the first thing I want to say is that for me, when I got over the hump with sales is when I started to do role playing and I practiced. It was just like when I was developing my, my skills as an interviewer, I had to practice. I thought, well, I, I know this industry. I'm selling to the this, this same people. I'm selling to the loss prevention folks. I got this in the bag. Well, it wasn't that easy. I needed to practice. Um, I'd, I'd say the main skills that I use, though, is really understanding when the prospect was hesitant and, you know, understanding what, you know, what are the different things that you can do to try and get them over the hump or or pass their objections. And that, again, you have to have that arsenal ready. You have to practice ahead of time, no um, sort of game plan, think through, you know, here's what I think this person's objections are going to be and be ready for it. You can't go into any sales meeting just trying to wing it. That didn't work for me. Such important advice. And I feel like I run into that pretty frequently with people who feel like, well, I'm charismatic. I'm outgoing. I like to talk. So I'll just talk my way through and I'll figure it out. Yeah, until you don't. Yeah. And unfortunately, that tends to be a brick wall when you get there. Like, here's something I can't talk my way through. We're done. And often the people who make it look easy and are so successful are the ones that have practiced it before they got there. Yeah. Um, I'll say this jokingly because we're both friends with this individual, but to give Chris Norris credit for something, we, uh, he and I prepared for an interrogation, which he did. And the guy was a regional vice president of sales and supposed to be very well educated and very smart and very sarcastic and witty and all of these things. So the night before the interrogation, I got to play that guy. Chris and I sat in a hotel room next to O'Hare Airport, and I got to just be that dude. Chris went through his spiel, and every chance I could, I cut him off with something different. And Chris had to work through all that. Then he goes, gets a quarter million dollar confession. And when we would show the video, people would say, well, that was really easy. Why did you build it up? Nothing about that was easy. 
Chris spent an hour and a half dealing with me the night before. So that way, when it happened in real life, it was just cool. I've been here. I've done that. The stress is gone. So that practice piece is so important. Yeah. I've seen salespeople who, yeah, like you said, they're charismatic and they get lucky, right? The, they may be able to carry a conversation, but as soon as they get that one person that knows a tough question, um, they may be stumped or they'll throw out some BS and the person in the room will be like, yeah, no, I know you're throwing out BS. Like they're, they're going to read through it. You're not going to be lucky all the time. And there's no coming back from that. No, your credibility shot, right? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a little bit analogous to bluffing during interrogations. If you you might get lucky once in a while, but there's going to be plenty of times it's not going to work. And we might not know it didn't work. Like if you're a salesperson and you're BSing and they catch you, if you're an interrogator and you bluff and they catch you, if they've got a good poker face, you've got no idea. You're going on feeling like this is great. This is going your way. Everything's working out until all of a sudden the conversation's over and you're done. Yes, absolutely. And especially if you're talking to a high level executive who's been been around and had many conversations and their whole job is to vet, you know, solution providers and, and new solutions, you better have your A game on. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would I would imagine that potentially that you like you said you you sold into a clientele where you came from the industry to begin with. And given your success and your reputation in that industry, likely many of the people you were selling into either knew you or knew of you or most certainly knew somebody who, who did. Did that add an extra sense of pressure if people felt like they knew your background when you were coming into these conversations? No, and I'd say it was the opposite. I think it was a built-in credibility. So awesome. I would come into a conversation and they knew that I knew what their pain points were. I wasn't making it up. They, they knew that I understood their business um, in a general sense, right? We would have conversations and get deeper into it, but I think it was, it was actually a help. Very nice. Yeah. People didn't see it as like a competition or I know where she's from or what she did. So <laughs> now let me see what I can get. You know, I think I came into it. I don't come into a sales conversation or any conversation from an arrogant perspective. I come in again, just me. I am who I am. So I don't think I ever ran into anybody that was like, oh, I, this is a competition of yeah. ego type situation. Good. Yeah, I can speak from experience knowing very well that you don't do that. Um, <laughs> but happy what to hear that, that, that you never <laughs> ran into it. Um, I know I'm running the risk a little bit of putting you on the spot here. So for the people listening, we practiced zero of this before we started the conversation. Um, you mentioned dealing with objections and having practiced and having a plan and were there. And I know this is completely lacking context, which is always living and speaking in the hypothetical world isn't easy. Were there go-to phrases that you had or go-to responses that you had, or even maybe almost like a step process that you went through to help navigate some of those? Through, I think, three or four different sales training techniques. And I sort of gleaned from those what I liked. Um, To be honest with you, it was my biggest thing was just making sure I understood what their needs were. Um, It wasn't me just sitting down and talking. It was me listening. Um, And then when I heard, you know, the specific pain point, it was then repeating it back, making sure I understood it because sometimes they'll say something um, and you're not understanding it, or maybe they didn't say it the way they meant it. So just making sure that we're all on the same page and that the pain point or that the need is, is clearly understood is huge. 
Uh, because that if that's not addressed first, then you can't get to anything else. Well, that's that's a great point. And I wonder if your experience has been the same, that often when we do seek that clarification and understanding, it's disarming. It puts them in a little bit of the power position. So it it, it, it inspires them to talk a little bit more and giving them the opportunity to potentially correct us actually typically ends up netting us more information because they'll tend to expand a little bit or add a little bit or over clarify the next time. So now we're learning more that we can turn around and use when the time is right. Yeah. I don't think you can rush that phase. It's a phase that you have to spend a lot of time in. Um, and then I, I say the biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for the close. I, I see so many salespeople who just sit back and you're forever, you know, spinning their wheels, but they're not asking the question. Like, hey, so let's, do you want to do some business? Like, it's not it's not complicated when you get through all, if you do all that legwork at the beginning and understand what the need is, what the desire is. Um, don't be afraid to ask for the close at the end. Certainly, and again, from your experience, correct me where I'm wrong. If that if that discovery process is done right, mm-hmm. and it's not just like a doctor ignoring you typing the answers to your question in the computer when you go to the office, like there's actually a relationship being established there and a conversation and credibility built that oftentimes by the time that's done, understanding that every industry and sales cycle is different when that's done well and done correctly, it often sets up the close. For sure. So it doesn't have to be some magic trick question that we use to get the close. It's a natural extension of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think it is, you are building a relationship. There's a rapport that's going on. Um, in fact, it's been really hard for me to let go. You know, once I close the sale, I want to keep that customer around, right? I went, oh, that's my account now. I'm going to be the account manager too. So it gets a little bit tough to let go because you have built a really nice relationship with people and they trust you, right? So it's all key. It is. And in a weird way, the process is obviously a little bit different, but the same can be true for interrogation. Oftentimes, it's not some crazy question that got somebody to confess. It was the process of the conversation that allowed us to build credibility, help them save face, establish the relationship. And by the time we got to that first accusation, it was just the natural next step in the conversation, as opposed to being something new and out of the blue. So looking at that continuance throughout the conversation, setting up either one or in sales, often multiple conversations to lead to that closing point makes it a lot easier and more successful than just thinking to yourself, okay, what's the question I'm going to ask to close this? Right. Yeah, it is. It it feels natural, right? And it's sort of like an interrogation, right? You may get objections. You got to kind of handle that and work through it. Um, It may be multiple conversations, like you said, but it does, it all sort of flows. There's a natural flow to it. As you think back to your career in sales, and I'm putting you half on the spot again, so we can certainly transition away. Is there one example that might come to mind the quickest or stand out the most for you where using that type of mindset produced a closed sale for you without getting into specific client names and details and all of those things? I mean, clearly that's confidential. Yeah, I mean, there's been a, a, actually a couple of times where I've been on a sales call where it was very early in the process, and we're still just you know talking about what the need is and what our solution was. And I asked for the close in the initial meeting and got it. Like it was because the conversation flowed so nicely and all their questions were answered, and um, we had we built rapport and a trust was going on. Uh, we were, I, I was 
pretty much taken a pack that it happened, but it did. Like I was able to close the sale um, within the first meeting. This has happened a couple of times and it was pretty awesome. I bet it was. And I think that ties directly back into some of the earlier illustrations you made about the skill set that you developed. Mm -hmm. So understanding the timing, it wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't a blind shot. It wasn't a guess. But by having the conversation and understanding the interaction in the room, how people were reacting, how they were behaving, the quality of the answers they gave, maybe the level of excitement that they had or the level of commitment that they had in their statements, like this was something based on their word choice that they appeared to be serious about, that it created the opportunity for you to ask that question as opposed to just throwing it out willy-nilly or taking a risk. Right. I almost looked at it as like they were kind of in submission, but but not in a bad way, right? They were just sort of relaxed. Their body language is like, okay, I'm very open. And they, they were, they're sort of looking to me to, to, to do it, to ask for the clothes, right? They're kind of sort of waiting to their questions that kind of come to an end, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, that's happened multiple times to me too. And it's, um, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Well, it's, it's where your skill set pay. One of the ways your skill set pays off for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked a lot about the interrogation or the interviewing skill set a little bit. I feel like although they're parallel, there's differences between the investigation skill set and the interviewing skill set. They certainly work together, but they're two different things. That process of investigation from how we think about the questions that we're going to ask the order, how do we prepare for our conversations? How do we go back and double check what we learned after the conversation? How has that investigation mindset supported you throughout your career? Hmm, that's a good question. So uh, I'd say it has kind of formed everything that I do in my work, right? So uh, attention to detail, you know, let's say that it, when I was working back in retail, um, doing an audit, right? So it's it's not an interrogation, but I'm going into a store and I'm, I'm developing a rapport with the team, um, asking questions in a certain manner, watching their reaction, watching how they react to the to the question. Um, and then going back and validating some of the results that I see. So I think in the investigator's mindset has pretty well formed everything that I do in my career. Even now working at the magazine, um, you know, I, I do, I do many different hats. I wear many different hats. I work with sales. I work with writers. I work with editors. Um, so there's, a, you have to develop rapport in all those situations because you are trying to manage people to the highest level. Uh, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say it has touched everything that I do. I'm not surprised. And again, that ties into the work before the moments. Like, have I built rapport with people? Have I done my research or my due diligence? Do I understand what my likely outcomes are or could be? Do I have multiple paths available to get there? Am I accepting what I'm told at face value? Or am I going back and fact checking it or double checking it? Am I using what I know now? to get more information later. And I feel like, especially in the fast paced business world that so many of us live and work in, people want to believe what they've told. They want to believe that things are under control. They don't want to take the time to prepare. They want to find that one magic question or that one magic tell and go on with their life. But speaking with somebody who has decades of investigative experience, very successful and awarded investigative experience, it's that investigative mindset that 
builds the infrastructure that leads to those successful moments. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong, Mike. Like there's times when I'm lazy and I'm just, (laughs) I don't want to do all that, but you know, you you have this little investigator in the back of your head going, Hey, you you just heard something that was weird. Maybe you should come back to that. It's like, uh, all right, fine. (laughs) Just that one sentence right there. You just heard something that was weird. Come back to that. How many times a day do people rationalize that away? Or maybe I didn't hear it right. Maybe they're having a bad day. That doesn't matter. Oh, like the little alarm light flashes, but because I'm busy or I don't care or I'm uncomfortable following up, or maybe I don't want to know it's easier if I don't, but Mm -hmm. just that one line that sounded weird. I should probably come back to that. If people just remember that they'll Mm -hmm. be in a much better position when they look to protect themselves in any number of situations understand the validity of what they're being told. It's such an important mindset. Yeah. And it's a tough one because there are times when you'll be in a conversation and you'll hear that thing that sets off the alarm bells, but you're kind of wrapped up in what you're thinking or you're, you're somewhere else on the chessboard, right? Um, so you kind of have to give yourself a second to go, okay, that was weird. Probably need to follow up on that in this conversation and not wait until later. Um, unless it was really, really weird and it's something you need to strategize on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe come back to it like in another day. <laughs> yeah. File it away, go back yeah. and think about it and then build a road back. Yes. Yeah. Big fan of that. So I've, I do have a, a couple of questions I'd love to ask you that I would never be able to answer. So we've okay. known each other, we've known each other for years and I've seen almost firsthand how successful you've been in the interview room. I guess I was never there and watched it as it happened, but we spent time together in the past and and I I have heard many stories and and shared them about your experience. Um, But as I was coming up in investigations, I remember a fair amount of conversation between opportunities for success that female interviewers had versus male interviewers. And if I recall correctly, I feel like somewhere along the line, maybe you wrote an article or moderated a conversation or or you've spoken on this this topic before. So when you look back at your career, and I guess I'll I'll ask a very ineffective question, but give you the chance to answer it in any order that you want. Um, If you experienced any challenges as a woman in that field, or especially in that context of investigative interviewing, what were they? But then also, what were the advantages that you felt you had as well? Yeah, so it was twofold, right? Or two sides of the coin. So there were times when it was a disadvantage. Um, And I think it, it is the same with any investigator, because you'll have somebody sitting there who has a preconceived notion. You may have somebody who is a misogynist who prefers not to talk to women. Uh, You may have someone who has a religious background that doesn't respect women um, or, you know, just different societal things going on. Uh, So, yeah, there were times that I ran into that. Um, On the other side of the coin, I think uh, there were times when I could sort of use it to my advantage, appear to be a little softer um, than I am. (laughs) I can't be. uh, I was told several times throughout my career that I'm a little bit intense, um, but there were times in the interview room where I could turn that down and just be perceived as a little softer. So I, I would use that to my advantage um, and sort of be looked at it like as the mom, you know, uh, to some of the folks that I talked to. So I would use that. Uh, but yeah, I think it could go either way. And even in, you know, throughout my career, sort of the same thing. It just depends on who's in the chair in front of you. 
that depends on who the chair in front of you is a great way to look at it. And even from my perspective is being the only man that I can speak to in my experience going through, you know, there were times where I remember in Chicago, I had to interview a woman who was in her fifties at the time. I was in my very early, I might've actually been 30 at the time of the conversation. She grew up in um, communist block, Eastern Europe. So the odds of her talking to a bald man with a beard within like a law enforcement tie-in is probably zero, but we're going to try this anyway because I'm here and we don't have another option. Uh, But there are also times, and we both know Brett as well, but I clearly remember being in one investigation thinking to myself, Brett's a better man for this than I am. Just once the conversation starts unfolding and you start learning relationship and personality dynamics, it's incumbent upon us to be who we believe the person in front of us needs us to be. Absolutely. Sometimes that's in our toolbox or within our ability. It's sometimes it's not. I can remember specifically one point in my career where I, I stood up, we did a whole bunch of research on this investigation or deciding who was the best interviewer. And I was, I was chosen by senior leadership to do the interview. And after I looked at the case, I said, I'm not the best person for this interview. This person is not going to talk to a, a white female. We need someone else. And it, I took a lot of flack for that. I took a lot of heat for um, deciding to take myself out. It's not that I couldn't do the, I could do the interview, but why not set ourselves up for success? You know? Um, so yeah, that was a learning experience. <laughs> it's, I mean, again, that doesn't surprise me knowing you, but that's a business decision. That's an enlightened business decision for people who are in the business of obtaining the truth. We want to do that in a morally, legally, and ethically consistent manner that also is going to follow the company policies and procedures and cultures and all of these things. So if we have multiple people that we can choose to send in, let's assume to some degree there are base qualifications they have to meet to be in this conversation to begin with. So why not choose the one who's most likely going to be able to con- create the relationship necessary to get the job? So that's not weakness. That's not intimidation. That's not a lack of belief in yourself. That's looking at a set of case facts and saying, considering the facts as they're currently presented, there's a better decision to me. Yeah. Like I said, it took a few conversations, but um, ultimately they saw my point of view (laughs) and we went with another interviewer. Based on your point of view in the aforementioned intensity that you shared. That right. Me. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a little bit might have had an impact. Just a wee bit. <laughs> While we're down the the road of like a little bit more of the personal side as opposed to the just the investigative or business side of, of the skills that thankfully we've developed and used throughout our careers. Often when I give presentations and people hear that I'm a father and my wife is a chief human resources officer, at some point in time in that conversation, I'm going to get a question that's usually phrased as a statement. Oh, my goodness, your poor son. And then they (laughs) ask, you know, how we treat our son. And like any other family on the planet, we're just trying to raise a child who grows up safe, turns into a responsible adult who contributes positively to society with the morals and values that we find valuable. And that's going to look different for every family, but I imagine for most of us, that's what we're trying to raise. For us, I also have the challenge of trying not to raise the world's greatest liar, because if I catch Gabe lying every single time, he's not going to stop lying. He's just going to practice 
because this is right. going to become a competition and he's going to want to beat me. So I'm going to end up creating the skill set that I'm trying to avoid in the first place. So again, without getting too personal, looking back <laughs> at how you have successfully raised your children and been the glue for your family, are there skills or techniques or approaches that initially you may have learned throughout investigative interviewing that have been helpful to you raising your family? Well, let's put it this way. Kids are going to lie. That's what they do. They're supposed you to. Know? Yeah. They, uh, they're trying to figure things out, trying to figure out who they are. And I knew when they were lying. And I, I think I figured out as I got to be kind of an older mom is that it's not always necessary to correct the lie. Um, I know they're lying. Um, so I just had to figure out a different strategy on how to handle it. Um, because I, I don't like lying. And my husband, Wayne, we can't stand lying. And it's, I think, from coming up in this industry, not a fan of it. But over the years, I've, I've gotten a little softer, as we talked about earlier. And um, I'm not as focused on correcting the lie, as in, I, I know about it. And like I said, I'll, I'll come up with a different strategy on how to handle it. But not as important. For the record, we've both gotten softer. Let's just keep it between us. Um, But that's such a good point that I feel like a lot of people miss. And maybe it's because we got lied to for a living in a lot of ways. But kids especially are supposed to lie. At a real young age, it's a sign of cognitive development as they grow up, whether it is taking control or avoiding consequences or managing how they're perceived, you know, any number of reasons. It's while potentially terrifying and not necessarily the value system we want to create. It's a necessary part of growing up. We all did it. Um, so how we confront them, when we confront them, which ones we choose to confront or not are all very important. At the end of the day, what's the goal? Like, what's the, what's the human being I'm trying to raise? What's the end result I'm hopeful to create? And how will confronting this help with that? I clearly, I mean, my son is six, so I am way behind you on this spectrum. You say it, Mike. (laughs) Many stories I'm sure to share in the years to come, but I very clearly remember his first lie. He was two. And Mm -hmm. we have a dog who is not well-trained and not well-behaved. And Gabe didn't want to eat his little chocolate chip muffins at the kitchen table. He wanted to eat them on the couch so he could watch Mickey Mouse. And every morning he would ask. And every morning we would tell him, buddy, we eat them here because Daisy's going to jump on you and she's going to try to eat them. And we eat breakfast as a family at the table. You'll have time to watch Mickey Mouse before we go to daycare. And so one morning I've got him set up for breakfast. He and I were sitting down eating breakfast together. He didn't even bother asking me. He waited for my wife to come out of the shower and come say good morning. And as Brooke walks up without saying a word to me, he looks at her and says, mommy, daddy said I can eat my muffins in the living room today stood up with this little plate and walked himself into the living room. And Brooke looks at me and I'm dying laughing, like dying laughing, tears on my face. She's like, what just happened? Like, he lied. He made that up. We didn't talk about that at all this morning. That just came out of his little brain right now on the spot. She's like, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing at all. I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to let him have his muffins on the couch this morning. And tomorrow morning, we'll turn it into a learning opportunity. And we'll uh, do it. But right now, I'm just going to think this is hysterical because it is. It is funny. Like, you have to find the humor in things, right? It's even, you know, I think back 
again, learning how to be an, an interviewer and trying to be successful at it, people would lie to you. And at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, they're lying to me. Now they're, they're a liar and a thief, right? Well, that's their job is to lie to you. Um, so you can't take it personal. You can't get upset about the lie. You have to just work around it. Same thing with kids. You, you can't get upset about it. They're exercising what they believe to be their last remaining good decision. Right. <laughs> we might disagree. We might not see it as a good decision, but to them, they've gone down the list and this is all that's left. <laughs> yes. So I, I really may as well try this. <laughs> I'm going to lie. Yeah. And I feel like it's, I mean, you talked about removing stress earlier. If we can just understand that that's part of the process, I'm not going to advocate it. I'm not going to coach it, but that's part of the process. They're going to get there. And when they get there, is this a learning opportunity? Is this a coaching opportunity? Is this one I'm just going to let slide all together? It's, it's a, it's a small piece to a much greater puzzle. Absolutely. So I can't let you completely off the hook just yet because you mentioned Wayne. Okay. And for those of you that don't know, your husband, Wayne, is a tremendous interrogator in his own right. I'll let you two debate who's the best interrogator in your house. I know we've joked about it before, but I'll, I'll let you guys have that debate. He says I am. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you both. That might be true. Um, but not only is Wayne a fantastic interrogator, he's a great guy. He's another personal friend of mine, a mentor to me in many ways. I can't speak highly enough of him, of you, and of your whole family. So now everybody knows the bias behind this conversation if, if they're still listening. Um, but again, when I think back to Brooke and I, she's a CHRO. I first met her in one of my training classes. We talk about interview and interrogation all the time. It's a big part of her job. So people often make jokes or comments about what it's like for her and I to be in the house together. Without getting personal, obviously, what's it been like for you and Wayne being top of the food chain interrogators, being in the house together for all these years? Yeah, like I said earlier, I try to use my powers for good. Uh <laughs> Um, we both know when the other is lying, um, we're not good liars, either one of us. Um, and there's a lot of eye rolling that goes on <laughs> when the lies come out, but as a, as a habit, I try not to lie to Wayne. Um, like, in fact, I can't remember the last time I lied to him, um, because I don't like it. I don't like to lie. I think it's, it's too stressful. So why do it? But yeah, we, we like to have some fun. Uh, Wayne's a, he's a good storyteller. So sometimes I'll catch him with a little, you know, flourishments on his stories, like to call him out on that after the fact. I don't want to do it in front of people, but um, we like to have fun with it and uh, catch each other out sometimes. I imagine that, well, knowing you both, I'm sure of that, but I imagine it's also kind of a great level setter. Like, yes. Because we both know where we are and where we come from, everything is just on the table. Like there's no need to play the games. There's no need to go through some of the things that many couples do throughout their relationship over the years. It's just, we're both here. This is what we know. So we may as well work through it. Mike, almost 23 years. Nobody has time for that anymore. We don't play games. It's, <laughs> that phase is over. <laughs> Back to investigations. Let's take it off the personal piece for, for the remainder of our conversation. Um, in your career, you had multiple opportunities to develop new investigators to help teach people how to interview and interrogate. If anybody is listening and they are thinking about either developing those skills for their job, like in investigations, or developing those skills for their business or for their family or, or for whatever else it might be, looking back on the investigators you've developed, how would you recommend people start 
to develop this mindset and this skill set. Okay. Well, it, it, that's tough to say for somebody who just wants to use it for their family, but somebody who's in the field and has access to other investigators, watching somebody else interview first, I think is, the, is a great first step. Um, and then you can sort of model that behavior, find the things that you like. Uh, but I, the leaps and bounds that I saw my investigators take was when we recorded and we played back, right? So they did an interview and then we sat together in a room and we listened to the recording of that interview and, and just kind of picked it apart together. That was when we really saw improvement is when we did that. And I think that recommendation goes for sales. It goes Absolutely. for performance development conversation. It goes for candidate interviews. I know that some of the some of those they may not have the ability to record them, but if they role play and record the role play, I can speak to it as well directly. There, there were times where I felt like I came back to the office having conducted quite a successful interview. Mm. Then I sat down next to Dave Zalowski as he watched the video with me. Right, and it's I left with my self esteem in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but the development was absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. So even if you know I can't record a conversation with my prospect or with my customer, I get that. I can't go into a negotiation and record that conversation. But if I can record the role play, 